Welcome to The Dog Show, a podcast for dog mums and dads who like to spoil their pups and care for their well-being. I'm your host, Will Blunt, and every week I interview global experts about dog health, nutrition, behaviour, trends, and much more. Let's sink our teeth into this week's episode. This episode of The Dog Show features Ryan Tate. Ryan is a highly accomplished animal trainer who has worked professionally with species from leopard seals to zebra finches. He's also the author of the book, How to Train Your Dog, the complete guide to raising a confident and happy dog. The majority of Ryan's time is spent training biosecurity and conservation dogs to preserve our environment. He is also an animal behavior consultant to various zoos and agencies around Australia, holding qualifications in dog training, zookeeping, and marine science. In the interview, we discuss scent detection dogs, including the applications of scent detection in the real world and how to train your dog to detect scent. Ryan, welcome to the dog show today. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Will. Yeah, we are just chatting before we got on air. You're kind of in between places. You're playing back home, kind of got... You know, taken over by fog or something like that. So you've, but you found you found a nice little spot to to have uh, a conversation. Regular Wi-Fi, yeah, in a quiet room, yeah. That's good. That's good. I'm really excited to talk to you today because we're going to talk something about something which I don't know anything about, which is scent detection um, and training dogs to to detect scent. But before we dive into that content, I want to hear a bit more about your background. So I understand you've got an array of different dogs with all sorts of different skills and different breeds at home. So do you want to tell me a bit more about them? Yeah, sure. So at home at the moment, we've got uh, six dogs there and we have, um, sorry, I've made a fool of myself, seven dogs there at the moment. Uh, so starting from the beginning, we have a, our oldest dog is a Shetland sheep dog by the name of Finn, who also known as a Sheltie. And he is primarily used for dog reactivity consultation. So he's a very calm very non-threatening looking sort of dog that we can use for other reactive and fearful dogs to be in the peripheries and for them to usually, that'll be their first positive experience with a dog would be a dog like Finn. Then we have our Belgian Shepherd or Belgian Malinois by the name of Rafa, who also works with Finn on dog reactivity. And they also work in a space called the Sinophobia Clinic where people with phobias of dogs are treated. And Rafa being a Malinois is the other end of the spectrum to Finn. So for people and dogs that are scared of other dogs, you meet a Shetland sheepdog and then you go through a variety of Spaniels and Labradors and Beagles. Rafa is probably what most dogs and people would consider to be a very threatening looking kind of dog. He's big, black face, pointy ears, and also a very, very well-trained biosecurity detection dog. Then, uh, we leap into all our Spaniels. We have uh, Taylor, our five-year-old English Springer Spaniel, who was last year named the Royal Agricultural Society Hero Dog of the Year for her work during the bushfires, where she located over 30 injured koalas during the fires. And uh, she also finds a variety of other different animals as well. And Connor is another Springer who's trained on a variety of invasive plants. Then another Springer by the name of Dash, who she's only one. She's uh, my second youngest dog. And she's working on some very nasty invasive weeds for biosecurity purposes around the state at the moment. And then we have two uh, very gorgeous little black working cockers, very light, very small, very intense little dogs that serve very much the same detection purposes 
as the springers, but they do everything in a smaller scale. So they're easier to get in and out of tight spaces. They do very small search patterns. They're nice and non-threatening looking. So you can get, you know, you can get a lot of work done without making people afraid or worried about the dog. So their names are Sally and Scout. And Scout's only uh, 10 weeks old and she's full of beans and, uh, you know, little cockers. Man. There's just what's not to love about them. They're delightful and they work really hard. I, I'm assuming it's not, you know, just um, by chance that you've got the the Springer Spaniels. They're obviously better at scent detection than other dogs or? Yeah, look, so the, you can teach, and this is what I love about the topic, you can literally teach any dog to find anything, right? It does not really matter. In the scale of comparing the human's nose to the dog's nose, when we talk about what dog is best, it's not really that their nose is exponentially better than another dog breed. It's that they have a higher desire to do the task. So usually what I'm looking for requires lots of stamina from the dogs and a very, very low likelihood of them actually finding it. So the springers are very, very happy to search for huge periods of times without a genuine find. Now, they also happen to be a very trustworthy dog off lead and they're non-threatening looking. So in Mm. terms of a dog that wants to search for hours and hours on end, is not threatening to wildlife or people and is trustworthy off lead, you really can't go past the springer and their just desire to perform the task. They're nowhere near as bright as, say, a shepherd, um, but, you know, obviously with the aesthetics of the dog and their ability to move through an environment in different landscapes without disturbing places, the springers come in really handy as opposed to our shepherds, which we love too. Can you kind of just explain what you mean when you were talking about biosecurity yeah. scent detection and that kind of stuff or like, you know, some examples of how you're using these dogs to find things. You mentioned the the koalas. I'm assuming that's after bushfires and things like that. Just, just give me a bit more detail about what you're talking about. Yeah. So, look, my business, uh, we've got uh, six handlers and a variety of dogs and some of those handlers and contractors have their own dogs. And the main two areas that we focus in is biosecurity and what we would call conservation dogs. So the biosecurity dogs are usually taken to locations where there's either a high risk of something coming into Australia or into the state or into a sensitive region. And we want to prevent that thing from coming into the area or perhaps it is in the area and we need to track that down. So that might be something like a cane toad on an island off the coast, or it might be an invasive plant or insect that has come in on cargo undetected and has taken to life somewhere in New South Wales on a farm or on a private property or state forest or something like that. And we'll train up the dogs under pretty strict timeframes and pretty strict conditions to hunt out that very specific target. And that's what the basis of what we call our biosecurity dogs. That's their, their primary functions is to hunt out those sort of things that are either really difficult for humans to spot or perhaps are cryptic. So they might be hidden in trees and in understory. And that's where the dog's sense of smell can be a really useful part to the whole biosecurity response. And then the other, not necessarily side of the spectrum, but the other area of dogs we have are uh, our conservation dogs, which are generally used to help find threatened species. So things like the koala or other endangered animals or animals that are native to Australia and need to be conserved or we want to do really accurate population assessments of them through certain areas, the dogs are, again, great at finding things that are difficult to spot. So koala poo, for example, looks a lot like a lot of poo in the bush, and it's really hard to spot. 
But luckily for the dogs, nothing else really smells like koala poo. So once we train the dogs to find koala poo or koala fur or koala urine, the dogs do it incredibly quickly. And it is for koalas by far the most effective and accurate and efficient method of finding them, particularly in low numbers or in areas that have been burnt or or affected by natural disasters. There is no faster tool than a dog. Now, Drones and thermal imaging is starting to catch up, but no one method is perfect. So when we can work dogs with people, with drones, with spotlighting and thermal imaging, we can do really amazing things and really fast responses in natural disasters or in areas where animals like the koala need help. I don't, from what I know, I don't think drones can smell. So (laughs) no, no, they can take huge photos Mm. of big areas and have algorithms plugged into them that that can either spot thermal signatures or spot um, spectral imaging signatures of plants and animals. So they are just, you know, every year the technology for that space, and I'm I'm a big proponent, I'm a conservationist at my core, Mm. you know, of seeing that grow alongside the dogs. And, you know, those two spaces seem to be, when we look at biosecurity and conservation, the dogs and the drones and the cameras, they sort of seem to be, you know, really just every year one-upping each other and we're learning more about them and getting better and better results. How far away from a scent would a dog need to be to actually, you know, identify it? So the spaniels are the best of what we say acquiring an odour. So that means they can work through an environment in a very smooth fashion, moving left and right in front of the handler and moving the same way. And that's when we know the dog hasn't made odour, hasn't acquired odour of anything yet. What we see in the dog when they acquire odour is a change in behaviour or just noticeable difference where the dog will suddenly stop and change very suddenly and the intensity of their search pattern will change very, very dramatically in an instance until they work to the actual source of the smell. So from the moment that they've acquired the odour to finding the actual source of the smell. For my dogs personally, the, the best we've seen is about 120 metres on their on their targets. Now, most of their targets are what we would call low odour, so lower odours, maybe a single koala or some scats, and we've definitely seen them at about 100, 120 metres pretty reliably go, oh, I know that smell, and then go left, right, left, right, really intense search pattern, bang, here it is sitting at the base of this tree. Mm. And similarly with rats um, and and other small mammals that we've been looking for, around that 100 and 120 metre mark, depending on the environmental conditions. So your wind direction, your humidity, the uh, cloud cover, temperature, all of that will influence how the scent molecules will move through the environment. So everything essentially on earth is in a constant state of sublimation or evaporation. And that's putting molecules into the air that the dog's olfactory system will grab and analyse at a much greater ability than we can. And the dog can then decide, okay, where is that coming from and work in on that. This is probably taking a step back, but how did you get into all of this? Did it start with the, the love for dogs? Did it start with the love for science and the environment? Like, where, how did you get into it? Yeah, it's it's a funny. I was just literally telling my Uber driver this story on the, <laughs> on the way. Um, so, it, for me, it really started as a, as a love of the environment. So, um, birds and the water were, were, was really where my passion for for all things 
nature really kicked off as a child. And, you know, as, as, as young as I can remember, I wanted to be a marine biologist. So I, I very much um, single-mindedly pursued that task from about the age of 10 and got myself into a marine science degree and uh, went on to study zookeeping and, and became a zookeeper at Taronga Zoo. And then eventually um, I headed up the marine mammal department there and and oversaw or marine mammal training and marine mammal research. Got to go to Antarctica and Kangaroo Island and um, all these beautiful places working with seals and penguins and sharks and turtles and fish. And uh, that was a 12-year career. But during that career, I um, I always had a love for dogs, always had dogs and, and was dabbling in, you know, agility and obedience and, and a bit of private dog training on the side. And the fire didn't really get lit within me until I met um, a group of dog handlers from the Australian Defence Force uh, who were doing explosive detection dogs and their stories and their relationships with their dogs um, just, just, you know, really lit a fire within me. And then, you know, I stayed in close contact with them. We did some handler exchanges and we spent time with them and vice versa. And then I met uh, a lot of police officers doing We did the same sort of thing with the cops. And then I met a bloke by the name of Steve Austin, who was training dogs to find penguins. And Steve really pioneered um, biosecurity and conservation dogs in Australia. So just meeting all these amazing characters, um, I sort of knew that as amazing and as sexy as that whole marine mammal world was for me that um, I felt like I had a calling to go in that direction. So then I went and I did a bunch of different dog training courses at TAFE and, and studied some courses under Steve and his wife, Vicky, and just, you know, just chipped away at it and, you know, essentially worked double time for many, many years doing odd dog jobs till it got to the point where, um, you know, I felt really complete in what I'd achieved within the zoo world and with marine science and felt like there was some some amazing opportunities in the world with dogs. And, uh, yeah, around this time, my, my first child was born, you know, six and a bit years ago. You think you should be playing it safe. That really um, encouraged me to take a leap and follow my dreams. Instead of playing safe with a job that I always knew, I wanted to go forth and, um, and, and try something new. So I left the zoo. And, yeah, kicked off into the dog world and um, I was doing truffle dogs and narcotic dogs. And at a demonstration that I was doing at a, at a Dog's Day Out event, I uh, met some people from national parks who were doing weed work with dogs and volunteered in the program there and just made one thing led to another. And uh, here I am. That's all I do. I find weeds and find animals with people from national parks and other similar organisations. Yeah, it feels like there's a lot to a lot of different pieces in your background that kind of all just led down this path. Um, do you feel like you, you you've taken a lot from that time as a zookeeper and everything like that, and and potentially learning behaviour of other types of animals and how that's related to to dogs? Oh, absolutely. And I, you know, in that time at the zoo, I was really lucky to work with a, a wide variety of species, and you know, a lot of time with birds, and um, you know, within dog trainers. There is, is a lot of respect for people that can transition between something like a bird and something like a dog where, you know, they're so different in the way that the fundamentals around how you have to handle them that once you can start to see those similarities and you can transition between species like that, you you feel quite whole as a, as a trainer and you feel that, you know, I can, I can take on almost anything and certainly that, that zoo world um, 
you know, they are somewhat controlled environments, but when you're working with free flight birds and you don't have a lead, you can't deliver corrections, you're really relying on your ability to utilise reinforcement well and to understand your animal and use approximations to to get the best out of these animals. So it certainly, you know, allowed me to have a great understanding of the importance of understanding your animal and understanding the rewards that are going to suit them. And as well, uh, detection dogs, we want them kind of wild. We don't want them fully tamed because we're relying on a sense that they have a natural instinct that they have that we don't understand. So for me, working with birds and sea lions and then transitioning to these dogs that we want to be a bit crazy and a bit wild, it's it's actually a really nice, smooth transition where I feel super comfortable with those crazy firecracker dogs that often drive other handlers mad. I go, this is my jam. This is this is where I feel comfortable. I, I like those dogs that just feel like they're on the verge of chaos at all times and where things could go pear-shaped. That's where I feel really happy and comfortable. So you've spoken, you know, touched on a few different things like scent detection for explosives and, and, and in the police force and obviously you've spoken about biosecurity and those type of things. How does scent detection relate to your average dog owner? Like how is it applicable in the real world? Well, when it comes to developing a program for a, let's say you've got a dog that's a mess, right? A pet dog that's an absolute mess and it's anxious, it's reactive, it's, uh, you know, it might be underweight or overweight and it's phobic of everything. We want to do whatever we can to make that dog feel good and feel powerful before we start to tackle their triggers head on, right? And the dogs see the world through their nose. It's their primary function. And if you want to make that dog feel good, you want to connect with that dog, by asking that dog to use its nose to do some really simple things like holding a treat under their nose, throwing it into some grass in your backyard and saying, find it, mate, have the dog run after their treat, sniff it out in some long grass and eat it and have you crouch down and praise them like they're the best dog in the world. That's one of the best building blocks to getting that dog to feel powerful and feel a little bit of control in their environment and build some trust with their owner or with their handler or their family or whoever it may be. So we love that we have trainers in our team that specifically work with reactivity and fear aggression and and complex dogs in their home. And we always try and include a little bit of scent detection in that dog's life to make that dog feel good. And doesn't matter whether you've got a pug, a border collie, a, a shih tzu or a schnauzer, they all will enjoy using their nose in some way, shape or form. And we can modify those games in a number of different ways of complexity based on the dog's desire and ability to build a relationship and give the dog some functional functional tasks that you know might get a bit of exercise out of the dog or might teach the dog a new skill using their nose. So what you're saying is it's kind of a core skill or a core process you can go through with your dog which will help with other parts of their their issues potentially behavioral issues absolutely and you know we did you and i were talking about it before we went live but i I did some work for the abc on catalyst where we took three average dogs and you know when i say average i mean they were completely untrained dogs and put them on a two-week crash course of scent detection just taught them how to find one thing so one dog was finding a set of keys the other one, the Chihuahua, was finding a mobile phone and the Schnoodle was finding the daughter's wallet. 
And that's all we did for two weeks, literally nothing else. We said, how can we train the dogs to find these things? And the owners did all the training. I was their mentor that supported them through it. At the end of the two weeks, every single one of those dogs had a better recall. They had more drive in everything they were asked to do. They looked to their owner for instructions. And the number of measurable behaviors associated with anxiety or stress, particularly in the chihuahua, went down exponentially. The the dogs were visibly so much more connected to their owner and content within themselves by learning one task. So it's, you know, it's not hocus pocus. It is really about giving the dog a, a purpose through something that they know they're great at, which then has a flow and effect to just the dog feeling good, having you know little oxytocin hits and endorphin hits that transfer onto the owner and the owner feels good and they transfer that back onto the dog and suddenly everyone's feeling bloody great because we're just playing a silly game of scent detection instead of all day going stop that come here knock that off stop barking get outside get off the couch suddenly we start saying yes good dog thank you wow i'm proud of you and looking at the dog and lighting up and that's addictive that feels bloody great yeah, it's not nice having that always negative vibe around something your dog's doing. I'm sure that everyone, including me and my wife, could use a, a dog looking for our keys every now and then as well. Oh, mate, it, it saved my skin once or twice, that's for sure. <laughs> so how do, you, how do you train a dog to detect scent then? How does it all begin? So, look, there's, there's a lot of different ways to do it and any trainer that says this is the only way to do it, um, in my mind, is, is probably being a little bit, uh, showing a bit of disservice to how amazing dogs are because there is lots of ways to do it. And you can start with just literally teaching the dog to find treats in a varying degree of distracting environments, or you can go straight to the source, which is what I normally do. So whatever we want to train the dog to find, I go to a very, very boring environment. We have a shed at our property where it's polished concrete floors and nothing else is happening. And I take the dog in there by myself, flick the lights on, make sure the dog's in a happy, calm state. And whatever the source is, I place it in the middle of the room, on the ground. It might be in a jar. It might be just sitting there by itself. And I literally place it in the middle of the room. I let the dog be free. And as soon as the dog gets within a meter of it, I'll mark it, usually saying the word good or yes, and then I will reward the dog with its favorite reward. might be the tennis ball. It might be a treat. It's going to be something the dog loves. And we essentially do target, physical target training with something the dog can see. I like that. So you're eliminating everything initially just so it's a really focused environment for the dog. Super, super easy. And we've repeated this process so many hundreds and hundreds of repetitions and times with different dogs over different workshops all around the country. And we know it works providing that your starting place is a suitably quiet environment. So the part where the wheels fall off is when humans try and take the dog into an environment that is too distracting for the dog and try and generalize that process. So dogs are poor generalizers. They don't generalize positive experiences to different locations very well. And that's where a good trainer will you know, thrive is they know when to push the dog outside that environment. They know when to bring, maybe bring distractions into that environment. And, you know, going from my shed to the middle of Kosciuszko National Park is a bloody big leap. And there's a lot of steps between that. So those first processes in the shed, 
that's honestly, that's pretty easy. Anyone can do that. But knowing when to then say, righto, I'm going to add in chickens. I'm going to add in sheep. I'm going to add in other dogs and people and children and food and, and other poo and whatnot and have the dog work in amongst all that. That's where the science and the art of training detection dogs sort of come together. And you do need to go off that gut instinct a little bit. Yeah. So how long does that take? What, like how gradual is that process from stage one to stage two to stage how, however many there are? <laughs> Look, if you gave me a perfect one-year-old dog of any variety mm. um, that is green and untrained, I could probably have it pretty close to field proficient within, say, two months, three months. Um, but, you know, perfect one-year-old dogs don't exist. They're not available. They're in someone else's home having a bloody wonderful life. So I usually get puppies at eight weeks of age. And my female dogs, particularly the Springers and the Cockers, usually by the time they're one, they're getting pretty good. Mm. Um, the boys, you know, 18 months to two years before they're reliable. If you have a job where perhaps the environment you know is somewhat controlled, and not overly distracting, or maybe the dog's working on lead perhaps. Yeah, you can get them out there a bit younger, but for, you know, for an, a dog working off lead and working around wildlife and stock and people and cars and roads and stuff, for a puppy, yeah, you, you, you're looking close to, to, to a year before you're going to have anything substantial. And that's daily kind of yeah, reinforcement, yeah. all that kind of stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, my, my days for a puppy at the moment would be, they must go every day and do some form of socialization or environmental experience. So, you know, they might go and meet different wildlife. They might go to airports or shipping yards once a day, you know, five minutes, 10 minutes or whatever. We need to tick that off. Then we would work on play. So getting the handlers to play with the dogs. That might be a few minutes broken up throughout the day, playing fetch, playing tug, just building a relationship. A bit of obedience, five, 10 minutes here and there of obedience, and then working on detection, which is ironically the probably the smallest part of the dog's day in terms of time. And, you know, if you do that, you know, you're probably only looking at a cumulative a couple of hours of work a day, but five days a week, just chipping away at that for a dog over the space of 12 months, managing them well, making sure they're happy, they're well fed, they've got some social companions. You have a pretty amazing dog by the time it's it's one. You know, this is all I do. This is all my team does is where yeah. <laughs> our lives are dedicated to these dogs and, you know, we're pretty good at it. And so the dogs end up, you know, pretty spectacular by the time they're one. Um, but, you know, it's not, it's not huge amounts of time. If you think the average pet owner, you know, might, might walk their dog for an hour in the morning, an hour in the afternoon and or maybe half an hour, if they broke up that time into a bit more training and a, and a bit less latte sipping at the dog park, they'd be amazed that when they bond with their dog and, you know, and try and train them something, you know, my first few dogs, I did not have that amount of time to put into them. And they were spectacular dogs. One was a, you know, world record holder. And um, the other one had, you know, lots of trials and amazing tricks and behaviors under his belt. And it was just about, I wanted to engage more with the dog before and after work. Then I wanted the dog to run around like I had this chook at the dog park while I, you know, chatted to my mates. And I think, that's where people can see huge results is just by using their time a little bit more effectively with their dog. It's interesting. I never thought of it that way, you know, replacing some of the just mindless walking time with training time because they're still getting stimulation and exercise from that. It's a great it's a great way to look at it. And what we used to do with our dogs, particularly, you know, once they're heading towards maturity is that you'd go for your walk and then just halfway along the walk, you just go, oh, I'm just going to stop 
at this little park here and I'm going to do some recalls. I'm going to do some spins. I'm going to do some weaves between my legs. And the dogs just think the walk's just gone from being great to bloody amazing <laughs> because yeah. we're adding yeah. in some problem solving. We're taking high value treats and some cool toys and, and the walk becomes, you know, so much so much more than just a walk and a sniff, which is, don't get me wrong, still super important, but you can you can spice it up a bit. It's like stopping in an amusement park on the way on the way home. Exactly, <laughs> <laughs> great analogy. Yeah, yeah. So, what about if I drop my five year old dog off at your house? Is it taking a lot longer to to teach them to do the same things? Not if the dog's well adjusted, not at all. Right. So, if the dog is confident and um, has been appropriately appropriately socialized and desensitized to the world around them. Not at all. A good five-year-old dog is great. Um, one of my handlers, Steve, just got a, a very good three-year-old dog and um, who was just not gelling with the handler that previously had him and didn't really know any of the stuff that we wanted the dog to know. And just, you know, yesterday he just ticked off his first job. You know, and he'd only been with him for a few months. So, yeah, it's just about you know, the confidence, I think a five-year-old nervous dog is heaps, heaps harder than say a nervous eight-week-old puppy uh, just because of that, that critical development time and, and, you know, and fear just inhibits learning so much. And I suppose over-socialized dogs, uh, you know, a, a lab or a staffy that's been allowed to just, you know, recklessly socialize for the first two years of life it can be really hard to get that dog to place value on people. And that that's probably the other end of the spectrum. So really fearful dogs or dogs that have just been allowed to recklessly socialize at the dog park as adult dogs, I find them personally the most challenging dogs to work. I can still work with them for sure. But, you know, anything that falls in the middle, um, I think they're all, you know, pretty, pretty similar. Because they need to unlearn, I guess, a lot of habits if, if they're on those spe- that spectrum. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's, you know, it's a, it's a, things that have emotional connections and just like with us you can learn a new skill immediately but to change your emotional response to a stimuli to something that you're scared of or something that you love or maybe an addiction we might have that takes that takes time you know there's no magic cure for dogs that have a strong emotional response to a stimuli it does take time cool so brian thanks for sharing all those tips about scent detection and your background i've learned a huge amount on on the interview today uh, where's the best place for people to go to find out about, more about what you're doing and scent detection? I know you've got a scent detection course on your website yep. as well. Yep. So our website is www.tateanimals.com. We've got the usual socials with our Instagram and um, Facebook, uh, at Tate Animals. Uh, yeah, so we've got a lot of lovely short courses online. We have more detailed um, like membership-style courses. We call Ryan's Members Lounge where – it's uh, heaps of courses, but informal webinars and things like that. And um, Jen, my wife, and I just um, published a book only a few months ago that's in all the major bookstores, How to Train Your Dog, very original title. Um, <laughs> and that we talk a lot about um, breed-specific activities that people can do through the book and how important it is to treat your dog as an individual and what you can do to try and learn about your dog so then you two can have a better life together and you can have that relationship that hopefully you you want with your dog. Yeah, perfect. Well, wherever anyone's listening, I'm going to share the links to the book, to the website, to all your courses, all the socials as well so they can check it all out. Appreciate that a lot. Thanks, Will. So just one last question. For the scent detection course, I I mean, the the puppy courses and stuff is somewhat self-explanatory in terms of who would use them, but who do you think is the perfect person to, to 
do the scent detection course? Well, honestly, it, the content is absolutely aimed at the entry-level dog owner, but I include enough of the science in that that I've had people that have been experienced trainers who've done it and said, I actually learned quite a bit about that. So I've had people, yeah, like really experienced professional handlers do that course and go, wow, that was great, just to hear a different perspective on a topic they already knew about. And lots, probably 90% of the people that have done it have been people that have just done, you know, puppy class with Jen or myself and go, I'm going to do something fun with my dog. I want my dog to find my keys. And they've done it with, you know, a nine-month-old bulldog or a, a cavalier. And they're the dogs. We love getting the videos of, you know, whippets and cavaliers and bulldogs and pugs and dogs that we wouldn't associate with detection doing you know, really beautiful jobs around the household. So, yeah, for, for those average pet owners with stock standard pet dogs, get into it. Well, I've got a five-year-old French bulldog who <laughs> probably isn't that well trained. <laughs> um, so maybe I need to give it a go and could be a case study for yeah, that. <laughs> you're very sure. That you, we'll, we'll send you a, a promo code after this, mate, give you a little discount. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Well, Ryan, thanks yeah. so much again for coming on the dog show. I've had a lot of fun. Uh, thanks for having me, Will.